Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode 39, where we go back, back to the to past the and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and by Lantern's Light. Mm. Mm, that's a little tip off, folks. Uh, we got a special request this week. Uh, what, what would that be, Chris? This is a uh, request uh, by V. Ken Marion, currently an artist on Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps for DC, obviously. Hmm. Uh, this is the second request of his that we're doing. Uh, we, what, what did we do? We did Wildcats, right? That's right. It was Wildcats number one. That was a great one. That was a lot of fun, yeah. Hmm. But he wanted us to discuss either Wildcats number one or Green Lantern volume three number 51, and we figured we'll do both. Uh, this is the first issue of the new era of Green Lantern here. Um, this is uh, May 1994 cover date, written by Ron Moss, penciled by Daryl Banks, inked by Romeo Tangal, colored by Steve Matheson, with a color with a color price. No, 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 a cover <laughs> price of one dollar fifty USD. 200, 200 cents Canadian. Wow. Wow. They only oh, take no. loonies for that one. That's good. Yes. <laughs> the black and white price was half, I believe. So that's fair, you know. Now, <laughs> before we jump into this, Chris, I want to know uh, now, as I know your history, you started as a Marvel guy. Yes. But then in the late 90s, you expanded. You, you started to buy everything, including DC. Were, were you part of this when it first happened, or did you come into this a little later in the 90s? I, I came into it a little bit later. Um, I was, uh, you, you know that I'm a, I'm a completionist, so yeah. uh, I'm kind of all or nothing. And I was trying to stick with the Superman titles after the reign, during the reign of the Superman, and that's where this all starts, but we'll get to that. Right. And uh, I couldn't afford to keep up with all of that and my X-Men addiction, which I still haven't outgrown yet. So uh, something had to give, and uh, unfortunately it was DC for the time being. Yeah, but but since then you have gone back. I know Kyle Rayner is you He's know, my guy. considered yep. your guy in, in the uh, core. Anyway, just curious about uh, where, where you jumped in on this. Uh, I came in way later personally, but that's... Uh, hmm. Not even worth talking about. So we'll do the uh, creator bios as we usually do these. I gotta say, were particularly difficult for us. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, we always talk about the artist is usually a little uh, slimmer as information goes. But uh, for, for a, such a prolific writer, I had a lot of trouble with Rod Mars's early life. But uh, we'll we'll tell you what we found out here. Uh, Rod Mars was born November seventeenth, nineteen sixty-five, in Kingston, New York. His first exposure to comics was a box of Silver Age Marvel issues that belonged to his older brother. He was working as a sports and entertainment journalist when friend Jim Starlin convinced him to pitch a few stories to Marvel in 1990. This must have been what eventually became Silver Surfer Volume 3, numbers 42 to 43. That's his first work in Marvel, and that mm -hmm. seems very Starlin-inspired kind inspired. of stuff. Inspired, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ron Mars co-created Janice Vell in Silver Surfer Annual Number 6 in 1993 with Ron Lim drawing. And then he started writing Green Lantern, and here we are. Wow. Yeah, I know. Very brief. <laughs> well, you know, obviously we'll get back to him later, but sure. I couldn't I couldn't even find out where he graduated, any any of that stuff. So uh he's an enigma, this man, Mr. Mars. He is. Wrapped in a riddle. Um, uh, across the table, we got the artist, Daryl Banks. He was born in Columbus, Ohio, uh, probably one day during the year. Yeah. During a year. We didn't know. Uh, 
his, uh, his father's name was Aubrey Banks. His mother was Mary Fowler. He uh, graduated from Columbus Eastmore High School, and that's where he decided that uh, comics might just be a, a viable career choice for him. Uh, he studied at the Columbus College of Art and Design in Ohio. Upon graduating in 1989, he sent samples of his art to Marvel and DC. He also hauled his portfolio to uh, comics conventions to solicit work from, uh, you know, Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. On advice from friends, Daryl sent samples to smaller independent publishers like a lot of the uh, folks starting out did. Uh, he would get work from Innovation Publishers. They're uh, based out of Wheeling, West Virginia, and he was drawing a series called Cyberpunk that ran two issues in 1990. It was followed by the new Justice Machine, <laughs> and that ran three issues, uh, 1989, 1990. Can we read a lot uh, of that old Justice Machine, Chris? You know that? Yeah, the, uh, you know, I actually have some. I think that was from uh, Eclipse. Oh, yeah? Uh, Early I 80s. do have some of it. Yeah, I do have some of it, but I, I didn't know there was a new version. We, sh- we should do a compare and contrast sometime. We should. Yeah. He would go on to draw the uh, four-issue miniseries, The Wild Wild West. That was uh, 1990 through 91 for Millennium Comics. And uh, we're thinking this was probably based on a CBS TV show, right? It it was. I just don't remember the show at all. And I even looked at it and I looked into it. I was like, I have no memory of this show. It rings zero bells. (laughs) Whatsoever, but okay. (laughs) He uh, drew Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, Monarch of Armageddon for Millennium Comics in uh, 1991. He then went to work for DC. His first work was illustrating Legion of Superheroes number 49 and 50 in 1993, and then he would settle in on Green Lantern with uh, you know volume three, beginning with uh, the issue before Ron Mars came in, issue 50. Oh no, no, this is this is the one. This is the one before Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern, issue 50. Mm-hmm. And then he drew a whole bunch of this series up until its conclusion. Uh, I think his last issue was around 140-ish. Oh really? But the, okay. uh, but the volume did end around uh, at 181 mm. plus a plus a one million. That's <laughs> right. Plus one. You're right about that. And you know there are annuals in there and things and whatever. Sure, sure. And uh, you know he also obviously did the one we're going to be discussing in just a moment. You know that bit about him pitching to Marvel and DC and his friends having to coax him into pitching to independent publishers. That that rings true from my memory as being you know as a uh, young. Young fellow myself, and I had friends that wanted to get into comics, and a couple of them were the same way. You know, do you, do you know anybody like this too? Uh, you know, it's funny because I was looking at this, and I remember the Rob Liefeld story, and it was like the complete opposite. Yeah. Where he was like avoiding Marvel and DC and only wanted to pitch to the little people, and the little guys didn't want him, but Marvel and DC did. He having to luck, he having to luck out at a convention. Yeah, he absolutely. Yeah, by. I can't remember who who saw his work uh, Mark, first. Not Mark Greenwald, was it Greenwald? He eventually saw it, but the first guy to yeah. see it, I can't remember who it was, but uh, you know that that hooked him into Marvel. Well, actually, first he did work uh, Hawk and Dove. The Hawk and Dove, yeah. But uh, anyway, it's I I find that I found that really rang true though from my experience. I remember hmm. having discussions. I'd be like. You know, there are so many of these other publishers around there. Obviously, I mean, if you're talking the late 80s, too, they're cranking oh, sure. stuff out. You know, this is your time. And he's like, no, I mean, my dream is to work, draw X-Men. And I'm like, well. You know, <laughs> you're going to have to bump off Jim Lee there's then. A certain, yeah, a certain fellow on <laughs> X-Men right now that's not going anywhere little that I know. But uh, anyway, <laughs> get back to Green Lantern. So who is Indeed. Green Lantern? That's, our, that's the question we're going to answer right here. Well, Green Lantern is two people. Oh, and in a way... <laughs> Seven people, or eight people. Uh, thousands of people. Yeah, really, a lot of thousands of people, ultimately. But we're going to talk about two of them. Uh, the original Green Lantern from the Golden Age was Alan Scott, 
First appeared in All-American Comics number 16, July 1940. He was a creation of Martin Nodell and Bill Finger, and they are credited that way, artist first, mm-hmm. on the uh, title page. So he was a railroad engineer who discovered a magic lantern. It was based somewhat on the Aladdin story, Rub the Lantern, Get the Power. It was actually a thing happening where uh, the, the lantern would, would flame three times, once to bring life, once to bring death, once to bring power, and then he, he showed up at the third time to get the power uh the impurity is wood yep. which figures in well to a lot of those stories and it's powered by the green flame not willpower it sort of has a very like uh 1930s asian oriental mystic sense to it yes uh and the green flame was an incarnation of the strength of green growing things Hmm. And was but wasn't it you that told me that he was originally going to be named Alan Ladd, right? That's right. He was. So the be... fit in even more with the Aladdin story. But some movie came out, and I think it was Lawrence That's Arabia. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, yep. Where the main character was Alan Ladd, and they decided not to, you know, be look like that. Sure, sure. Well, now the next one, the Silver Age fellow. This is Hal Jordan. First appeared in Showcase number twenty-two, September October nineteen fifty-nine, created by John Broom and Gil Kane. Uh, he was a uh, he was the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, uh, test pilot for Ferris Aircraft, son of a test pilot who passed during a flight demo, and the ring impurity for this uh, for this brand of lantern is the color yellow. Yeah, uh, which that wasn't true at this point anymore. Where we're heading now, right? That was a, yeah. No, that, this was worked a, out by by Ganthet, Yeah, events that we will probably touch on in a minute. And of course, we got to talk a little bit about the Green Lantern Corps. Their first appearance was also in Showcase number 22. It was an organization of 7,200-plus lanterns presiding over 3,600 sectors of space. Based out of the planet Oa, O-A, uh, that Oa is at the center of the universe. It's commanded by the Guardians of the Universe, who are sort of like uh, old-looking blue uh, little people, but they're not Smurfs. No, they're they're little Julia Schwartzes. That's the that's exactly the way to look at them. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, before we get into what we're going to get into, let's uh, let's set this set the table here. We got uh, what came before this story. We are going to talk about uh, very briefly the last testament of Sinestro. This happened in Green Lantern Corps number two twenty two, uh, cover date March nineteen eighty eight. This was from the uh, Steve Englehart run, correct? Yeah. Yeah, this is where uh, Sinestro is put on trial by the Green Lantern Corps, and he's found guilty. Uh, he's ultimately trapped inside the central power battery as punishment, because uh, it's this is when they were, like, they killed him, or they were going to kill him, and uh, this is where it gets really wonky, because there was a, there was like a peace treaty that people of his uh, race or, or whatever couldn't be Corrigarians, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Corrigarians, yeah. They uh, couldn't be harmed otherwise... Stuff was going to happen, and uh, I think we there, there was time some weird mishigas. But they basically they took yeah. they took them out of out of play for a long time, really. You know what I mean? If you think yep. about it, that happened in 1988, Absolutely. but uh, yep. I don't know who drew that one, but I I positive it was maybe Staten, possibly. Yeah, you know that yeah. actually does make a lot of sense. And we're also going to talk about the reign of the Superman. Uh, we're going to talk about Green Lantern number 46. It was October 1993. This was uh, where Cyborg Superman and Mongol were trying to turn a coast city into an engine city and destroyed it. Yeah, and that really, that is really the event that tips off everything that, that you know, leads up to Kyle Rayner becoming uh, Green Lantern. And mm-hmm. those events are that, you know, two issues after 46, Hal attempts to recreate Coast City with his ring, but the ring runs out of juice and kind of leaves him disappointed. 
and then he's summoned by the Guardians for abusing his power. He heads off to Oa, stealing rings of fellow lanterns along the way, killing them, uh, not just, like, borrowing the rings. Uh, takes out his friends Kilowog and Tomar too, without really any compunction. It really is kind of a shocking moment right there. Very cold, yeah. Yeah, uh, especially Kilowog, who I really had a, you know, everyone loves that guy. Yep. Uh, Guardians uh, then have to awaken Sinestro to neutralize the Jordanian threat that is coming, but in issue 50, <laughs> Hal kills Sinestro, the rest of the Corps, and every Guardian except Ganthit. Wow. Uh, Until Jeff Jones comes on. Yeah, well, you know, that we'll, we'll, we'll do a little bit with that later. Yeah, but I mean, this was this was seemed very finite at the time. Yes, very uh, very fine. And then Hal steps into the power battery and becomes Parallax. He becomes infused with the entity and uh, becomes, you know, super god level lantern mm -hmm. thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and then Ganthid husbands the last ring and takes it to Earth and bestows it on a young fellow in a nine inch nails shirt. Hmm. Which brings us to Green Lantern, Volume 3, Number 51. Uh, story title, Changing the God. On the cover, we have a brand new Green Lantern, a brand new Green Lantern logo, a brand new ring, a brand new costume, but the same numbering. Whoa! This ain't a Marvel book, is what it? The, what the? I, I, I thought you had to renumber every time you put a new uh, costume on a person. I thought so, too. No. <laughs> but this is the fellow from the last issue. Uh, we will we will know him as Kyle Rayner. He comes bursting forth from the lantern symbol over the Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles. Uh, the entire sky looks to be exploding somehow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now uh, Kyle's wearing <laughs> he's wearing a new costume that's supposed to be like the big reveal at the end, yeah. like that he designs this new costume because the initial costume is basically Hal's costume. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, <laughs> so I guess we're just gonna, we'll just, just kind of cover our eyes and we'll act surprised. Act surprised. Oh, what a great costume! Ooh. Oh, oh goodness! Yeah, act like you never <laughs> saw it. Yes. So uh, we crack the comic, and the opening splash page depicts Kyle Rayner in the Green Lantern costume. This is the, like we said, the classic Hal, complete with the mask. Uh, being thrown backwards through a plate glass window into a lingerie, lingerie store. Uh, we know it's Kyle Rayner because he tells us in the very first caption. Yes, his, the caption reads, My name's Kyle Rayner, and I don't, know, I don't know what I'm doing. Or maybe you can tell that. Now, uh, turn the page, Kyle looking a little, little beaten up in his double-page spread, title spread. He's facing off against a robot villain named Ohm. Yes, as in a unit of electrical resistance named after German physicist Jorg Simon Ohm. Yep. Uh, not the sacred sound that is in a mantra in Hinduism or other Eastern religions. You know, the Ohm. Exactly, Ohm, yeah. Uh, Ohm says, Come to me, boy. Face me. I'll burn you down with the power of the city itself. Yeah, yeah. Don't get your electrodes in an uproar. Seriously, don't do that. Uh, it Seems really dangerous if you, it does. Yeah, uh, Kyle leaps at Ohm almost like a panther. <laughs> this leap is really he's very animalistic. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Uh, Ohm punches him silly with an electrical swat that goes Sirzak, and Ohm stands over Kyle, arm raised and ready to deliver the final blow. As Kyle gets some more thoughts in in caption, this really isn't working out like a plant, and it seemed like such a good idea. Just last night. And now, just last night, <laughs> Kyle, we, we jump into flashback. Kyle is knock, knock, knocking and hollering at the door of apartment D in some seedy-looking efficiency motel. The door is opened by Alex, 
a rudely awakened strawberry blonde wearing only a pink men's dress shirt. She's also wearing lipstick, which is kind of odd for bedtime. Yeah, I would think she'd take that off, but uh, she says, Would you shut up? You'll wake Mrs. Kravitz upstairs, and you know what she's like. And Lisa Bonet was with Lenny Kravitz at the time, right? Yeah, that's how I remember it, so I, I wonder if this has a, some sort of a dig at her, yeah. I wonder. Uh, Alex further says, God, Kyle, it's the middle of the night. Why should I let you in? Because you can't resist me. Smooth. Totally. Yeah. Uh, even I'm getting taken in here, and I just said it. Uh, now, Alex lets Kyle in uh, while explaining that they broke up just last week due to his irresponsibility and not engaging with the relationship. Kyle reveals that he's Green Lantern by changing into the familiar Hal Jordan duds. Yep. Alex, <laughs> hey, guess what? And Alex does a double take. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. Alex thinks this is some kind of prank, which would be a hell of a prank, I gotta say, just uh, to whip mm-hmm. out the suit. But Kyle tells her how he came to be so verdant. All right, I'm in this alley behind a Her- the Heretic Club, right, to get some air, and this blue midget in a red dress just appears, you know? How fresh was this air you were getting back there? I wonder. Alex says, blue midget in a red dress. Right, he gives me this ring, tells me to put it on, then disappears. So I do, and this happens. Instant suit. Kyle says he just had to tell somebody, and Alex is that somebody. The fact That fact doesn't really thrill her that much. <laughs> Alex points out that the ring is probably more than a costume generator. It means he's connected to the Green Lantern somehow, <laughs> and therefore might have his powers and abilities. If not his brains. Yeah, you know, I gotta say, uh, Kyle does not seem like the sharpest tool in the shed overall. He's, you know, he's an alright kid, but... <laughs> Brains are not his forte. Um, Too much Nine Inch Nails. Probably. Yeah, the loud music did it. <laughs> Alex says she got pictures of him for the newspaper when she went to shoot the aftermath of Coast City last month. So Alex is a photojournalist, we learned right here. Hmm. Kyle seems to have forgotten about that old son of a gun Green Lantern, even though you'd think the Insta costume would have really clued him in. Be like, oh, wait, I think I've seen this before. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> Justice League. Uh, remember, but though, not everyone on Earth is aware. In fact, I'd, I'd say virtually nobody on Earth is, is aware of Hal Jordan's transformation at this point, right? The parallax? Like Probably this, not, yeah. This is literally the next day, so. Yeah. Uh, or that the entire Green Lantern Corps is dead, so this may not be like. He may not be thinking that he got a dead guy's uniform, yeah. basically. Yeah, he, he doesn't he think it's a hand-me-down. Uh, uh, Kyle uh, shows off some more powers. He wills himself to float, about which he's enthusiastic. Alex ain't so much. She really isn't, isn't enthusiastic about much. Uh, she no, says, no. what needs to happen is for you to get back, get your feet back on the ground. This whole thing is nuts. Okay, so let's say you've got something here. What do you plan on doing with it? Come on, Alex. Isn't it obvious? I'm going to be a hero. And she seems dubious about that as well. It's very funny. <laughs> Go uh, figure. Yeah, she, she's not really on board with any of this. Uh, Kyle's idea is that they move to New York City. He does his superhero bid, and Alex can take pictures of his exploits for the New York Times. Yeah, he says, you don't want to be snapping gripping grins for a rag like the L.A. Examiner for the rest of your life, and I don't want to be designing greeting cards for the rest of mine. Well, I can tell why they're not letting you write them, Mr. Grippin' Grins. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> No, Alex, she's still not buying this. She's still unsure. But Kyle kindly bullies her into considering his plan and also letting him spend the night on the couch. She hasn't quite forgiven him all that much yet. 
The next morning, Alex rips the blankets off Kyle's sleeping form, and he is nude. Rise and shine, Sleeping Beauty. We've got places to go. What's going on? Call came in. Some nut in a suit of armor is tearing up Rodeo Drive. Paper wants pictures. I could use some company, and I don't think I should let you out of my sight. On the way, Alex says this perp stole an experimental electrical suit from Star Labs. And they are, of course, the Scientific and Technical Advanced Research Labs, an extra-governmental science organization that gets invoked when people don't feel like using Cadmus or LexCorp. Or Cord or Wayne. There's a lot of scientific research done in the DC universe. Yeah, we'll figure. A lot of it outside of the government's purview, too. You know, this is it's, very it's, true. It's, it's, it's almost like a planet where pe- very wealthy people, instead of husbanding their money for, you know, pools and, you know, Bengal tiger steaks, they put it all into uh, scientific research. So that's nice. I think maybe. Uh, now, Star would first appear in Superman number 246, December 1971, and was created by Carrie Bates and Rich Buckler. Uh, now, Ohm is back. He's plugged into the city's electrical system. And let me tell you, it must feel good. More power! Give me more! I'll bring this city to its knees! Alex hops out of her Jeep and tells Kyle to stay put while she snaps a roll of film. Yeah, like that's gonna happen. Kyle Green Lanterns up and brings us back to the scene what we saw from the beginning. Kyle takes an electrified gut punch, then zips away from the killing blow. He realizes he's got to think defensively, not offensively, and puts up a puny shield. I mean, look at this thing. It's like the size of a, the lid of a garbage can. You know what I mean? If, if that, yeah. You, you can do better than, believe me, you know? I mean, I know you don't know how to use your ring yet, but something that covers the whole body, you know? Anyway. And and no matter what size it was, it cracks anyway. <laughs> As he takes yeah. a burst of electricity from Ohm. Uh, Kyle hurls some kind of battering ram construct at Ohm, knocking him back. I'm plugged into the entire city. You can't... Crunk. Kyle rushes over to Ohm's fallen body and cuts open his armor, fashioning a beam of his ring into an acetylene torch, probably? I guess, yeah. He just seems to slice it open and Ohm is like, "Ah, Don't! Don't cut me! Shut up. I know what I'm doing. I like this, the caption. He's like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but, you know. <laughs> uh, and so Kyle yanks a guy in pajamas out of the armor and gives him a good right hook. Maybe this is the right line of work for me after all, he yep. thinks. Punching punching people in the face. Uh, <laughs> Alex comes running towards him, a camera in front of her face, snapping pictures. Kyle's triumphant, actually standing with his arms up, fingers pointing. Pointed to the sky, one foot on the chest of an unconscious home. <laughs> like, like the end of a wrestling bastard. match or something. <laughs> what a cocky bastard. Uh, he thinks to himself, one day people are going to talk about Alexandra DeWitt in the same breath as Cartier Brison, Salgado, Mary Ellen Mark. Who? I don't know. Uh, he's talking about Henry Cartier Brison, a French humanist photographer who specialized in candid shots. Sebastio Salgado, a social documentary photographer from Brazil, and Mary Ellen Mock, a photojournalist who preferred subjects away from ma- mainstream society and toward its more interesting, often troubled fringes. Right. And I, I had no idea who they were either. Yeah. Uh, Kyle thinks to himself, uh, and talk about me in the same breath as Superman and Batman. Boy, we're really feeling ourselves today, aren't we, Mr. Rainer? Sheesh. Uh-huh. You know? It's like you, you just took out one guy. And you, one dude. And frankly, in his pajamas. You didn't do a great job of it either. <laughs> um, Alex pulls Kyle away from a gathering crowd of adoring fans, and later they're at the beach taking in the sunset. 
They're talking about the Green Lantern costume. Kyle goes, I don't know. I kind of like the old one. It looks good on me. True. But that's not really your costume, is it? It belongs to somebody else. You need your own identity. I think these are just the minutes from the editorial meeting for this issue. You know, they were <laughs> just <laughs> like people, so. people, oh, he should have the old costume. No, he needs his own identity. You know, I could just <laughs> picture it. Think about the action figure. Exactly. Kyle responds with, guess that makes sense. And I am a graphic designer of greeting cards. Yeah, I mean, really, buddy, your costume's going to have a sad-looking puppy and get well soon emblazoned on the front. Give me a break. <laughs> Maybe some balloons, too. Something like that. <laughs> now Kyle whips up a new costume with his ring, and it's the same one from the front cover. Oh, but it's, oh it's brand new. What a great costume. <laughs> Very good. It, it's sort of a tuxedo-looking affair with some chunky green gauntlets. And uh, this is the Viewmaster eyewear that makes everyone moan and groan. I gotta say, for this first appearance, and on the cover also, it's kind of understated. I feel like they added to it later on. Yeah, because people usually refer, look, think back on it and refer to it as the crab mask. Because it, it kind of resembles a crab. It looks more like a crab, whereas now it's definitely got like much many more like defined ridges. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's multifaceted. Look, it looks like it weighs roughly 10 to 16 ounces now, you know, whereas this one looks Easily. like you can actually wear it. <laughs> So an epilogue takes us to Slab Side Island Maximum Security Security Penitentiary or the Slab. Uh, very convenient to have a place <laughs> named Slab Side, but uh, a new extra secure prison for supervillains being constructed off the coast of New Jersey. And Mongols escaped, and he's looking for Superman and Green Lantern. Dun, dun, dun. And that'll take us to the next issue. Mm-hmm. But that's not the end of uh, that's not the end of the story here. We're going to talk about a little bit more about our our man Kyle here. Uh, he was the only Green Lantern for a very long time, and uh, the primary Green Lantern for 131 issues. Volume three ended with issue 181 in November 2004. A whole lot of these were written by Ron Mars. Uh, he left after issue 125, June 2000. He uh, came back towards the end of the mm-hmm. series as well. Because uh, uh, Judd Winnick had a very long run on it as well. Yeah. Um, now, this is uh, <laughs> this is what a lot of folks think about when they think about Kyle's early days. Uh, his girlfriend, Alex, the photojournalist, was dismembered and stuffed into his refrigerator by the immortal villain, Major Force, while Kyle was away for the day. That happens just uh, three issues from now in Green Lantern 54, cover date August 1994. This would become a defining moment for the character and for uh, several reasons, but uh, we will cover that later. We'll get back to that, but I will say I was surprised that it happened so early in his run. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize it was right away, but. Right away. We have a whole thing to say about that later on. So, uh, <laughs> later, eventually, later in his run, Kyle meets his predecessor, Hal Jordan, as the evil Parallax during the time crunching event Zero Hour, a Crisis in Time in 1995. And we did an episode all about that uh, mm-hmm. event in issue 57. Kyle moves to New York City, at, and they give him an address at 175 Bleecker Street, and he hooks up with the Titans. He and Donna Troy have a little thing for a while. Kyle eventually gets absorbed into Graham Morrison's JLA beginning cover date January 1997. This is when I met him. Uh, mm-hmm. Before this, I knew, that I knew there was a new Green Lantern, but I didn't know anything really else, just that there was sure. one, and this is the first time I really started seeing him. Uh, and just to say that this, plus his use of Electric Superman, it really showed Morrison's dedication to playing the ball where it lay, you know, which I yeah. really like, you know what I mean? I mean, this was this, that JLA, as we've talked about, was, was meant to be a return to basics, but mm-hmm. that didn't mean 
don't throwing pretend, everything away. Don't yeah. yeah, don't pretend that the events in the other comics aren't happening. So anyway, that's uh, that's for another JLA-based show. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in Green Lantern number 145, February 2002, Kyle absorbs some of the residual vibes left by Parallax after he'd sacrificed himself into the sun during the final night and becomes the god-level superhero Ion. Uh, while all-powerful, Kyle restores the Guardians of the Universe and Oa, and then he drops the power for a while. Uh, in Green Lantern, number 154, November 2002, written by Judd Winnick and uh, with art by Dale Eaglesham, Kyle's intern, in his capacity as a freelance illustrator, uh, Terry Berg is the victim of gay bashing. This uh, this got a lot of press at the mm, time. I can imagine. At least, uh, at least for, you know, comics. Sure. Uh, this sends Kyle off into space for a while, and then he comes back to Earth to find Hal Jordan is back. That's why you should never leave for you too don't long. Leave. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else will come and take your job. <laughs> Yep, you got you got to you know you got to mark your seat. Yep. You know, someone else will take it. Uh, and this is of course Green Lantern Rebirth, six issues, uh, December two thousand four through May of two thousand five by Jeff Johns and Ethan Van Skyver. Uh, then Kyle was a Green a White Lantern, a New Guardian, an Omega Man. Now he's currently uh, a Green Lantern again in the same costume, uh, in the pages of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. That's right. They they did put him in the uh, in his the old classic, crab mask, his yep. old classic costume. He had the he had the crab mask as a White Lantern too. And oh, did he? I oh, could, he did. He did. Yeah. I, I you know and and I, I thought about we could get into the specifics of that, but it's all it's all basically been wiped away. You know all that stuff. That, mm-hmm. To be honest, they've had trouble. In the modern era, dealing with Kyle, I, I get the impression some writers have not known what to do with Kyle. I think one of the best handlings of him in the New 52 was the Omega Men storyline, which had mm-hmm. almost nothing to do with Kyle. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, 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 that's my impression of it. Um, but, I, you know, I've definitely come to, I've, I've never felt anything averse towards the character, but mm. I've definitely come to totally accept him and, and appreciate him as a lantern. And... He does kind of set off, uh, you know, among the other three main lanterns, Guy Gardner, Hal Jordan, John Stewart. Kyle's the one that adds the Peter Parker to the to the game. You know what I mean? The uh, that's that feels like that's what they were chasing with him I, for sure. I think that there's you know there's even some uh, some you know documentation to that effect in the world. But uh, mm. I think he's, I, I like him. You know, and and this issue, it's it's interesting that when Jeff Johns did the rebirth, how Efficiently, kind of wiped away everything. You yeah. know what I mean? Like while while accepting it having happened, just sort of like compressed and chucked everything, and like Kyle's whole run just kind of gets forgotten. But it was a long run, folks, and uh, it was a decade. Yeah, about. people yeah. people dug dug it a lot. So uh, I like this issue. I've now read a few issues in that run. I'd say it's worth taking a look. Oh sure. Of course, we're not done. We have much no. more, much more to say about the subject of. The creators and uh, Green Lantern and all the other things that surround this particular run of Green Lantern. So we're going to come back and talk about that right after the break. Um, so you are the writer of Green Lantern and you co-created Kyle Rayner. How does that feel? Uh, it's better than having a real job. Awesome. Uh, what's your favorite part of uh, what was your favorite part of creating Kyle? Um, truthfully, the freedom that they gave us while we were doing it, um, we didn't get a whole lot of direction or instruction as to what they wanted the new Green Lantern to be like. They just kind of let us make it up from scratch, and that's a pretty rare opportunity in comics to kind of deal with one of the icon franchises and be able to do what you want. Yeah, that's true. Um, now you made him an artist. Was there any reason behind that? 
one of the things that we wanted to do was to was to have a have the book be more exotic in terms of the ring creations. Uh, we we didn't want to just go with boxing gloves and tennis rackets and stuff like that. So we thought if we made the main character an artist, there would be an impetus to to have a lot more uh, exotic, artistic ring creations. Um, the uh, What we tried to do, at least with my run on the book, was to make sure that we didn't have him make the same thing twice with the ring. Exactly. You can see that. You can see that a lot whenever you read the comics. Um, was there any influence of why he's so young? Uh, more than anything, we just wanted uh, we wanted a character who was not going to be like Hal Jordan, um, because we felt like if if the uh, if the idea was that you know they wanted to replace Hal as the main Green Lantern, that we should not do a character that was like Hal, because otherwise. Why not just keep Hal as the main character? And we're back to talk some more Green Lantern-ness, Green Lantern-ocity. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to wrap up our creator bios because the stuff we have at the end of the show is real juicy, folks. So we'll get, we want to get to that and uh, let that breathe. So uh, Ron Mars in 1995, he had a brief run on Exo Manowar for Valiant Comics. The next year, 1996, Mars wrote the DC Marvel All Access Limited series, which you actually reviewed a couple issues. A couple of, yeah. issues on your uh, blog. Ron Mars wrote the two-issue DC Dark Horse crossover Batman Aliens, March April, March to April 1997. That was drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Wrote mm -hmm. several series for Cross Gen Comics from 2000 to 2004, like. Almost every writer in comics did at the time. <laughs> Ron Mars has done work with Top Cow in the 2000s, including Witchblade, which he wrote from issue 80, November 2004, to issue 150, December 2011. This Long run. Yeah, this included the crossovers Witchblade, The Punisher in 2007, and Witchblade, Devil in 2008. Other Top Cow work from work from Ron uh, includes Cyberforce number one through six in 2006, and Cyberforce X-Men in 2007. Ron wrote a few titles for Devil's Jew Publishing, including Blade of Komori in 2004. This was for their Aftermath line. Mars wrote the five-part series Samurai Heaven and Earth for Dark Horse in 2005, drawn by Luke Ross. He wrote volume two of the series again in five parts from 2006 to 2007. And Ron Mars wrote Moonstone Books 2006 Annual featuring The Phantom. He was responsible for getting writers Chuck Dixon, Mike Bullock, Tony Bedard, and Rafael Nieves to contribute to this book. So, hmm. good job. Yeah. Uh, Moz became editor of three of Virgin Comics' Shakti line co titles in 2007. They are Devi, Ramayan 3392 AD, and the Sadhu. The These are Indian comics, in case... Uh, in case I haven't been clear in yeah. my pronunciation. Um, for Virgin Comics, he wrote the three-issue Beyond series based on a story created by Deepak Chopra. In 2008, he wrote Broken Trinity for, for Top Cow, which featured the characters Witchblade, The Darkness, and Angelus, or Angelus. Uh, he also wrote the tie-in series Broken Trinity Witchblade, Broken Trinity Angelus, 2008, and Broken Trinity to Aftermath, and that was 2009. In 2008, he signed an exclusive contract with Top Cow, which entailed three comics a month, uh, two Top Cow Universe titles, and uh, one of his own, a creator-owned project. In 2011, he wrote Voodoo at the launch of uh, DC Comics' New 52 initiative. Though he did leave, like a lot of them did, yep. uh, he left after issue five due to, say it with me, editorial, editorial differences. differences. Yep. <laughs> uh, he told Newsarama at the time, 
The only thing I was told was that they wanted a different direction for the book. I had a 10-minute phone call with the outgoing editor who gave me the news. I asked what direction they wanted, but since the editor was leaving staff the next day, he didn't really know. So that's all the information I was given. I haven't heard from anyone else beyond a call from the book's new editor to work out details on my last issue. This was a uh, tumultuous time for DC Comics. Yeah, that's a definitely probably worth its own uh, podcast sometime down the line. <laughs> Eventually, but. yes. Uh, Ron moved on to DC's digital first line after this, writing a story for Legends of the Dark Knight and a memorable one for Adventures of Superman, drawn by Doc Shaner. I think that was a three-parter. Cur- mm. Currently writes Dread Gods for Ominous Press, drawn by Bart Sears. And just for fun, let's list only his work on and with Green Lantern's titles, just just to show the the breadth of it. Yes. He, he did Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, 4 through 7, 1993. Green Lantern Volume 3, 40... Sorry? Green Lantern, Volume 3, 48 through 107, uh, 109 through 114, 117 to 125, number 0, number 1 million, and 176 to 181, and annuals 4 and 6, all through the years 1994 to 2004. Uh, Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Unholy Alliances 1, 1996. Green Lantern Plus, number 1, 1996. Parallax Emerald Knight, number 1, 1996. Green Lantern Flash Faster Friends, number 1, 1997. Green Lantern 80-Page Giant, number 1, 1998. Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins 1 and 2, 1998 to 1999. Green Lantern Sentinel, Heart of Darkness, 1 through 3 in 1998. Green Lantern Fear Itself, uh, this is was a, uh, oh, this is just a collection. And Ion 1 through 12, 2006 to 2007. So he spent some time with the Green Lanterns. A bit. And uh, currently lives in upstate New York with four horses, three children, two dogs, and one wife. No partridge in a pear tree, though. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, now, uh, now on, on the other side of the table again, we have Daryl Banks. Um, as of 1995, Banks was teaching two courses, one on illustration and one in comic book design at his alma mater, the Columbus College of Art and Design. He would draw a whole lot of Green Lantern Volume 3. He uh, then went into commercial art. He's done work for Filsinger Games, uh, statues, buildings, and accessories designed for the Hawthorne Village Collectibles, and action figure designs for Hasbro. Uh, Moz and Banks teamed up for a DC retroactive title just before the New 52 kicked off. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was Green Lantern, the 90s, number one. This is August 2011. And, you know, from reading through interviews, I get the impression he wants to get back into comics, but... I don't. I don't know why he seems to have trouble. I don't know that he'd fit. He's super talented, but uh, his his art is great, you know. And you know, it's better. You know, as you go along, this uh, Greenland to the '90s number one. I I know that one, and it's Mm -hmm. uh, really well done. But I guess it wouldn't fit into the current Green Lantern look right now, which is all kind of Ethan Van Skyver based in a lot of ways. I think, or at least kind of he's he's the template for that look. But uh, he'd be fine drawing pretty much any other title. But sure. I, we have nothing to do with that, but we do want to talk about the controversy surrounding mm. this time in Green Lanterns. Um, yeah, so due to problems with his editor, Kevin Dooley, over the fate of Hal Jordan, which, as we know, he would become Parallax, uh, Gerard Jones, who had been writing Green Lantern up to uh, pretty much the, this very point, walked away from the Green Lanterns, and Ron Mars was tagged in. Jones walked off after issue 47... But the comics had already been solicited up to 49, so we get, we're get we going to talk about some two solicits that, that came out for each comic and get an idea of what Gerard Jones's original idea was. Uh, 
but he did he did uh, was interviewed and did talk about this at length. Uh, he Gerard Jones said this is complicated stuff. Kevin and I had gotten off on the wrong foot from the time I finally finished the initial two-year arc and was ready to make the character mine at last. We basically just didn't define our relationship early. We didn't talk about the marriage before we went to the altar. We just went up there with these romantic dreams. Where, when Kevin was Andy's assistant, he had said he wanted that was Andy Helfer. He wanted said he wanted to make, he wanted me to make the character mine. But I think he saw himself as still being very involved with the material, where I thought he was really going to cut me loose. Also, I don't think I ever clearly articulated what I wanted to do with the series, and I, th I think he anticipated something different. Meanwhile, he was getting a crapload of pressure from above. Being a new editor at the time, when Image was coming on strong and DC's market position was slipping quickly. The more I ran with the character, the more nervous Kevin became and the more he got involved in asking for plots and rewriting, and the more I resented his hands-on involvement, and we started fighting about every damn little thing. Basically, it became a bad marriage. It was all about power and control, not making the product good. If I did something because Kevin insisted, I'd do it reluctantly, dully. If I did something because I wanted to do it, I'd fall the other way, into the worst kind of self-indulgence. And as it got worse, Kevin started rewriting more, and then things got really schizophrenic. In the last several months of my run, I don't think there was a single issue I liked, felt was mine, felt was what I'd wanted to do. And Kevin felt the same. It's not so bad if the writer is frustrated and pissed at his editor, but the finished product holds together. He continues... Writing company-owned superhero comics isn't about anybody's self-expression. It's about entertaining the fans. But neither Kevin nor I were very experienced with this kind of situation. We just couldn't get out of the swamp. We, birth we both learned a lot from it. Neither of us would do anything like it again. Unfortunately, we nearly killed the series by then. Anyway, it was obvious we needed something radically different to happen. Even before Paul, Mike, and the others said so, Kevin and I were talking about using issue 50 to turn everything upside down, bring in a new Green Lantern, give Hal an indefinite break, and get back to basic, exciting stories, which meant pulling together all the subplots we'd tossed into the soup, making sense of them, and getting them out of the way. And I really, really worked on it, making it not just make sense, but making it as lean and exciting as I could and emotionally involving. Unfortunately, Denny, who was Kevin's boss, that's Denny O'Neill, mm. uh, and Paul and Mike didn't feel it was big enough to turn around readers' perceptions of what by then had been a lousy comic for about a year, particularly if the writer stayed the same. As Denny said to me later, sometimes the market has to see that a complete creative shift is occurring, including the creative team, which makes total sense, although at the time I was very angry and frustrated. And Gerard Jones continues to say oh, this. Oh, boy. Yeah, he had a lot to say, like I said. <laughs> this whole series was my frustration, the series I really wanted to make great, but that for four years had never felt like mine. And here I saw a chance to start over and make it good at least, and I just couldn't get there. What I feel worse about is, in retrospect, is that Kevin was apparently going to bat for me again and again with his bosses. But because he wasn't free to tell me what was going on behind the scenes, and because I was mad at him about other petty crap, I blamed him. I criticized him to his bosses, wrote a nasty fax, really pure ways to blow off my frustration. I apologized later, and I think everyone understood that I was just a clueless freelancer, 3,000 miles away. But it was an ugly finish. I quit so they didn't have to fire me. Then they had an emergency plotting session, Paul, Mike, Denny, Archie, and Kevin, and they handed that plot to Ron Mars, who was coming up at the time. I had worked, had worked with Starlin, had a cosmic resume going. And I think sales went up sharply and stayed up for quite a while. Certainly the character generated more interest after that, so you can't criticize the decision. 
I, I, I just really wanted to get his full statement out there. On, oh, on, I thought it was interesting, like, he's tortured by it, you know what I mean? It's like, this is the problems with creative endeavors, you know, the people's moods and attitudes get in the way. They get in the way every time. Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of Ron Moss, he recalls that I got a call late on a Friday night offering me the book. This is in 1993. I'd actually been down in New York for the, for the day at the Marvel offices. I came home, my wife and I went out for a quick dinner, and then I guess around 9 o'clock the phone rang and it was Kevin Dooley offering me the job. Mike Collin, Archie Goodwin, and Denny O'Neill were in the room, as well as Eddie Braganza, who was Kevin's assistant at the time. I believe Paul Levitz might have been there as well. Uh, Kevin said he wanted me to take over GL because the book needed a fresh direction. I was excited because I always thought Hal was a pretty cool character and I loved that costume. And then the other shoe dropped. <laughs> Kevin explained what, what it was planned, essentially removing Hal from the book and replacing him with a GL that I would make up. And a new pretty costume. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Everything. Uh, pretty serious stuff. I actually begged off and took about a week before I accepted it. I knew this was a great opportunity, a rare chance to really change the course of a book. But I also knew it would come with an immense amount of baggage. Uh, I obviously ended up jumping in with both feet, though. The real kicker, and I swear to God this is true, I was wearing a Hal, jo- Hal t-shirt when I got the call. Wow. It was one of those pocket t-shirts from the Warner Brothers stores, and I still have it. I'm not sure if he still has it now, but at the time of this interview. At the time. <laughs> so let's talk about these books that were it's kind of skirting around a little bit. There was uh, Green Lantern 47 that came out in November 1993. This was a kind of weird business-as-usual Hal and Ollie team-up book sandwiched between The Destruction of Coast City and Emerald Twilight, and they, they barely would mention it, right? Or they mention it at the very end of the issue. At the very end, he's like, yeah, I guess i got to go deal with that. Yeah, oh, well, all right. By <laughs> There's always tomorrow. Yeah, uh, the original, uh, so then we go to the next issue, the original solicitation for uh, number 48, when Gerard Jones was going to write it, was that Superman and the Justice League gather by Green Lantern's side as Hal confronts the horror and destruction of Coast City. Meanwhile, on Oa, the Guardians of the Universe find themselves fighting a lethal battle against the Guardians of the Universe. Hmm. Now that solicitation would be changed. The yeah. final solicitation, the, the Ron Mars version, is beginning the special three-part story, Emerald Twilight, that culminates in the landmark Green Lantern 50. Green Lantern confronts the horror of a destroyed coast city, once the place where he lived, worked, and even buried his parents. Now Hal Jordan must come to terms with the death of his father, an event that led to his choosing the life of a Green Lantern. But his way of coping may cost him the ring, and the consequences of his actions will change his life forever. Of that, Mars says, I remember writing part of issue 48 between sets at a Peter Gabriel concert. <laughs> I found a quiet place where I could steal a few minutes to write. The, dead, the deadlines were that tight. Yeah, and it kind of had very Peter Gabriel influence in that issue. I think uh, so. But, you know, hammers and whatnot. Already we see you know, that Gerard Jones was not going to make Coast City's destruction such a huge thing you know, for, for mm-hmm. Hal, whereas they, it became everything for him. Uh, mm-hmm. The original solicitation for Green Lantern 49 when Gerard Jones was writing it was Green Lantern is caught up in a battle raging between two equally powerful groups of guardians of the universe. Hal's side loses and the winner's first act is to take away the Power Ring's 24-hour time limit and their yellow impurity. Their second act is to appoint a new leader of the Green Lantern Corps, Sinestro. This issue leads directly into the landmark Green Lantern number 50, a major turning point for the series. 
And uh, boy, those solicitations were pretty explicit back in the day, huh? <laughs> so, you, 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 you will not have to read the book to. You know. I feel like I already read it. <laughs> uh, but any, but the final solicitation for Forty Nine when Mars wrote it was part two of the three part Emerald Twilight. Hal uh, Hal Jordan has gone rogue, rocketing to Oa in a desperate quest for power, the power to restore Coast City. When the other Green Lanterns are unable to stop him, the Guardians are forced to reinstate one member of the Corps who might put an end to Jordan's rampage. Hmm. Now we don't have an original uh, solicitation for, no. for Green Lantern number fifty, but we do have the plot. Uh, it's going to be a uh, this is the Gerard Jones version here. It's going to be a war between the core. Uh, these new these new guardians arrive, and they claim that the current guardians are the imposters. And this claim is actually backed up by the Zamorans, who are the Star Sapphire type folks. You think they were clones? So the, I, well, the Guardian clone saga? Anyway, I'm sorry. Uh-oh. <laughs> if this happened a year later, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Uh, now, the, uh, these new Guardians, they wake Sinestro to lead the new core. Sinestro core versus Hal and the heroes, because, you know, the Justice League got involved in all that stuff. Uh, it's learned here that Hal's father's death was actually orchestrated by the old Guardians to provide Hal with the proper trauma needed for him to become a hero. Mm -hmm. Go figure. The uh, Ultimately, the new Guardians are, are revealed as manifestations of entropy, and the good guys eventually win. The original Guardians and the GL Corps back in business. Hooray. But there's still that, uh, that <laughs> niggling problem of uh, them setting up Hal's father to die. Yeah. So uh, Hal can't trust nobody. And he uh, he steps away. He's no longer a Green Lantern. He now calls himself the Protector. And I just want to say, I I went through a lot of interviews. Uh, Gerard Jones is very clear that was just a placeholder name. Okay. Besides, besides having taken away a name already used in those Teen Titans drug awareness issues. Yes. You know we don't want to. You know <laughs> that hero. You know it's like we're gonna call him Superman Two or something. But uh, yeah that. <laughs> That that was a placeholder name. We don't know what his name might have. It might have been a the protector. Maybe it been something even stupider. We don't know. Maybe it was Parallax. Or possibly. <laughs> now, in uh, 2014, Ron Mars said, "You know, when that assignment was handed to me, we had to hit the ground running because the book was already behind schedule." Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> what a mess. Uh, so I didn't have time to think about the consequences. I just had to roll up my sleeves and get to work. That's why the three Emerald Twilight issues were, th were drawn by three different artists. Yeah, I think like one of them was Bill Willingham. Uh, the third one was Banks, obviously. And the, the second one, I don't recall, but he was very, very 1990s. And a new, new to the scene kind of guy? Yeah, yeah, he's not a name I, I, I remember, but he looked he looked very uh, dollar store image. Um, so that's why the three Emerald Twilight issues were thrown by three different artists. They were all worked on at the same time. Wow. I still feel like the fact that we were on such a tight schedule was ultimately a good thing. We didn't have time to wring our hands and endless, endlessly second-guess ourselves. But, I mean, it must have been a you know continuity nightmare editorial. Oh, yeah. You know, just like you're editing... Issue They've got like whiteboards and, up with yeah, uh, it, string connecting them yeah. all. Back then, they might have actually been chalkboards. That's how long ago this was. But uh, <laughs> true, it's true. Uh, about this whole thing, Gerard Jones further mused. My plan was to eventually get to the point I wanted to start from. How self-directed, unburdened, light but tough. Kind of a soldier of fortune quality in a way. A little of that old Kniff charm. That pre-military Steve Canyon. Kevin Dooley had some real doubts about that, though, about the 60s echoes, the lightness. He felt we needed long cosmic epics and really earth-shaking villains to anchor it. Like Andy, he believed 
in really acknowledging previous continuity. He also had some ethical problems with the Guardians, not unreasonably, and he was uncomfortable with my take on them, which was essentially that, that these were gods, and like the old Greek gods, they were above conventional ethics, and Hal was willing to buy into that. Kevin wanted echoes of the Denny O'Neill approach, Hal pitting his human ethics against the Guardians' arrogance. At a personal ethical level, level, I agreed with him, but one of the charms of Green Lantern for me was always its strange, anti-democratic authoritarianism, the acceptance that these weirdos possess inscrutable knowledge of cosmic patterns, and the future that our little time-constrained sentimental brains don't have a prayer of second-guessing. So their appointed agents just have to go on faith. It's both religious and military, which is why Hal, as a pilot, as implicitly a military guy, was perfect. He continues, I wanted to play all of his agonies of the 70s and 80s as a crisis of faith, maybe a midlife crisis, from which I wanted him to emerge complete. But that tradition or expectation of how opposing the Guardians on, on very American ethical grounds was quite woven into the DC view of the character. Yeah, that happened like every year he had a problem with the Guardians and he would step away. Still. Um, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still that way and Oa, and Oa blows up about every three or four years you know <laughs> yes <laughs> no so the how I ended up writing always felt schizophrenic and Kevin and I became more competitive than cooperative at this point there are a few moments like the issue where Hal's old friend Olivia Reynolds turns up as a toy salesman where I felt I was really hitting something <clears throat> but those became less and less frequent until it was just a big mess Ultimately, Green Lantern was the biggest frustration of my entire working career. That's too bad, because that's kind of what you think of when you think of Gerard Jones. You do, and those and those are, you know, some of the best Green Lantern issues that I think of. Uh, I really like his run a lot. Uh, I know yeah, you're a big too. fan of Mosaic, you know. And Mosaic is awesome. There's, yeah. a, there's a, lot of, a lot of great work in there, but, you know, he had a lot of trouble. I'm glad they can still put out, even though he feels differently, I think they still put out a good product, despite, you know, the uh, conflicts going on. Sure. But he wasn't the only one that had a thing for Hal Jordan. And I think that uh, Rod Mars probably re really realized he stepped in something when he encountered Heat. That would be Hal's Emerald Advancement Team. They were originally Hal's Emerald Attack Team. But that sounded too terroristy, especially when you hear a little bit more about their tactics. So they had a uh, website at glheat.tripod.com. You can still access, it's still accessible. Uh, they were quite unhappy with Hal's removal as Green Lantern. The, uh, I guess their statement of intent was, <laughs> As Green Lantern fans, it is our goal to encourage and advocate the return and exoneration of Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, the restoration of the Green Lantern legend, and the revival of the Honorable Green Lantern Corps. They reportedly sent death threats to D DC Editorial as well as Ron Mars, which is so disheartening. They also yeah. paid, <laughs> this is amazing, $3,500 to run a full-page ad in Wizard Magazine and for the privilege of being merc mercilessly mocked by Wizard Magazine. Go <laughs> <laughs> figure, right? God, come on, folks. Ron Morris's closing thoughts he says, uh, look, people are going to believe what they want to believe, but if there are actually people out there thinking that it was somehow my life's goal to destroy Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern mythos, please seek help. I was offered a job. The job had certain parameters. I took the offer and worked within those parameters and did the best job I could. The truth is, if I hadn't written Emerald Twilight, someone else would have, and the story would have been substantially the same. 
That's by no means an effort to pass the blame. I did write those stories, and if you don't like them, feel free to blame me because, yes, my name is in the credits box. I still think Emerald Twilight was a gutsy move by DC at the time. To effect permanent change upon one of your top characters is brave. I liked Hal as a character. I still do. But he'd been badly handled for a number of years prior to my tenure. I can, I can remember picking up the first few issues of what was then the new GL series and coming away just not caring because Hal seemed like a wuss wandering the country searching for whatever. This was a, this was a fearless test pilot? So the thinking at the time was that something drastic was needed, something that would attract a lot of attention back to what had become a moribund franchise. That much worked. Yeah, and this is something we've talked about uh, on other episodes about legacy hmm. characters and how... In hindsight, obviously, it's disheartening that DC didn't totally stick with all their legacy. Yeah, they, they walked back. Yeah, uh, all of them over time. You know, um, you know. I mean, Kyle was around for a decade, as as you point out, just pretty much all by himself. Wally West was around for a long time, uh, mm -hmm. just as the only Flash. But um, yeah, they. You know, there's always that that feeling that you know you want to pull back, you want to go back to the old days, and I think that. That is where the you know uh, death lies. You know what I mean. That that's that's yeah. that's not growth. That's uh, I mean it's 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 funny for me to say because like I say, Kyle wasn't and isn't my Green Lantern, but I could definitely see his value, and I can see that there are a lot of people that feel uh, that he is. You feel that way. Eric does. Mm -hmm. A lot of other yep. people. That's their guy, and there are new Green Lanterns now, and I expect that in. Ten years, people will be saying that's their Green Lantern, and that's I'm a Simon Baz guy. I think I think that is the best, most organic way to do it. Instead of you're constantly lugging around Grandpa, now he's Great Grandpa, Hal yeah. Jordan. You know what I mean? I mean, this guy's been around for forever. But anyway, that's uh, a little editorializing about the fact. Uh, I definitely think that people need to not send comic companies and creators death threats it's no that's just silly there are no stakes don't don't ever forget these are all fictional people no one has <laughs> no one has been harmed in the making of these comics uh, at least no fictional people the real people gotta, may have been harmed <laughs> you gotta you gotta wonder it's like do they think they're gonna send a letter to ron mars that says if you don't do this we're gonna hurt you and he'll be like oh yeah okay oh. um okay guys we gotta we gotta fix this yeah we gotta we gotta get rid of kyle and okay. bring hal back this guy's gonna kill my dog i gotta we gotta just stick <laughs> hal back in you know i mean there was there was a storyline uh, not too deep into uh, Kyle's run, and you probably know better than I do, where like Kyle goes back in time, right? Yeah, that was and, the Emerald Knights. Right, that okay. was around issue one hundred. So he, and and he, uh, you know, the, Hal becomes part of it and almost stays mm -hmm. in the present and decides not to. Any, so, and what's the best part about that is that uh, that was Ron Mars's writing, and he treated Hal with the respect of a fan of Hal Jordan. Mm -hmm. So it's like he didn't make Hal seem out of touch. He didn't make him seem, you know, ineffectual. He treated him with respect, and uh, still he gets this label of hating Hal Jordan. It's just nuts. He he gave the fans what they wanted, and like like yep. I say, this is comics. We can do that. We can actually like drag these guys out, but to mm -hmm. constantly, you know, keep them de-age them constantly. You know, this is this is what brings us into. So many continuity problems today, but we do have mm -hmm. one more subject that we have to talk about if we're going to talk yes. about Kyle Rayner at Green Lantern, and that would be women in refrigerators. Uh, we touched on this before when we talked about Green Lantern 54, and we're going to expand on that now. So 
the term women in refrigerators was coined by writer Gail Simone after the events as seen in Green Lantern 54 from August 94. Again, Kyle's girlfriend Alex was chopped up by major force and stuffed in his refrigerator. Uh, it refers to the f- use of female characters as storytelling devices that give meaning or somehow, or just to somehow develop male counterparts. Uh, S- Simone and her colleagues then developed a list of fictional female characters who had been killed, maimed, or depowered, in particular in ways that treated the female character as merely a device to move a male character's story arc forward, rather than as a fully developed character in her own right. So that she would just be a device, a, lit- a literary mm. device. Uh, the list was then circulated via the internet over Usenet, bulletin board system, and email. And did, were you weren't were you part of this at the time? I was there for it. You yeah. you you lived through this. Yeah, I I came mm-hmm. into this much much later. I only, I only heard the term uh, fridging or women in, ref- in refrigerators probably around 2010. So. Hmm. Uh, you're you're from the front lines, but uh, yes. Simone also emailed many comic book creators directly for their responses to the list because this was a time when not everyone, <laughs> yeah, necessarily even had web access. You know, yeah, you no be, Twitter yet. Your AOL your <laughs> AOL account may have lapsed and you couldn't get on for a while. <laughs> Uh, now, Gail also maintained a website in 1999 to show this list and uh, some responses to it. The, re- the website is called, quote-unquote, Women in Refrigerators, go figure. Uh, but the, the URL is ely3.com backslash W-I-R backslash. So, uh, you know, W-I-R for Women in Refrigerators. Yep. It's still there, too, folks. You can check it out. Yes, and the list was met with uh, pretty much every reaction you could think of, and probably a few new ones besides. Um, now, Simone maintained that her simple point had always been, if you demolish most of what girl- characters girls like, then girls won't want to read comics. That's it. Uh, several contributors to the site and the original list later became comic book creators and entertainment industry professionals, such as Stephen... Smack? <laughs> Stephen Smack. Uh, he's the creator of webcomic Avatars. Daniel Merlin Goodbray, a digital designer and underground comic book author, creator of the hypercomic Six Gun, Tales from an Unfolded Earth, and the iPod comic Brain Fist. Brian Joins, writer of the independent comic The Seven Guys of Justice, and as of 2006, publishing new comics through Platinum Studios. And Greg Dean Schmitz, creator of the up- of creator of UpcomingMovies.com, a.k.a. Greg's Previews. He's also a columnist for Fandango and Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. So some of the most famous people in modern history is what you're telling me. Right? Mr. Oh, yeah. Mr. Household uh, names. Smilak. Anyway, uh, so we're, we're going to go through this. I have this picture up in my living room. <laughs> yeah. What you need is the pronunciation for his last name in your living room. <laughs> that would help. Uh, so now we're going to go through the list of the pe- people that, you know, Gail Simone and her uh, cohorts had put together. And this list is from 1999-2000. Doubtlessly, yeah. there would be new names on this today. And names pulled off. <laughs> and possibly names pulled off because they've yeah, they've been rebooted and changed and whatever. But so this is a time capsule of what this list was back then. It was uh, starts it's alphabetic too, so uh all of Savage Dragon's girlfriends, dead. Alisanne Seward, Stewart, dead. Amethyst, blinded, merged with Gem World, destroyed in Legion of Superheroes, became a power hungry witch in Book of Fate. She's busy. A- <laughs> Apparition one of her three bodies is dead, soul bound to boyfriend. Aqua Girl, dead. Aresia, dead. Aurora, she had MPD and she was depowered. Batgirl, the first Batgirl. Barbara Gordon, paralyzed. 
Batwoman, dead. Betty Banner, abused, changed into a harpy, had a few miscarriages, and dead. Mrs. Brian Banner, this is Bruce Banner's mother, who was murdered by her abusive husband. Uh, Black Harry, the first was dead, and then the second one was tortured, made infertile, and depowered. Blink, dead. Bluebird, dead. Buff from X-Men, crippled. Uh, Candy Southern, dead. Uh, the second Captain Marvel, aka Photon, depowered, ceded codename to a male hero. Carol Ferris, star Staffire, turned into a villain by the Zamorans, possessed by the Predator. Celsius, insane, dead, called delusional liar. Christine Helvin of Troublemakers, she's a victim of date rape, discovered that she could never have children because she was no longer human. Courtney Ross, dead. Crimson Fox, both sisters dead. Dot, crippled. Dawn Allen, dead. Dawn Star had her wings cut off and was possessed by another persona. Diamond Lil, kidnapped, experimented on by her own government, developed a benign breast tumor. Domino, kidnapped and tortured. The second dove is dead. Dr. Midnight of Infinity and Inc., dead. Elastigirl, the only Doom Patroller to stay dead. It's true. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, well, no, she came back for uh, Burn. For Giffen. That's right. Yeah, Sorry. Burn. And, burn, and, and then Giffen yeah. also. But at this time, yeah, she had stayed dead. Uh, Electrocute, dead. Electra, the real one, dead. Element Girl, dead. Enchantress of Suicide Squad, originally a heroine, turned evil, insane, depowered. Now... Back? We don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Firebell, dead. Firestar, the, her powers were sterilizing her. Frances Kane slash Magenta, she had a stalker con- complex. She was stalking Wally West. Uh, Fury 2, had her child kidnapped, husband killed twice, <laughs> and is insane. Gwen Stacy, dead. Hawkwoman, depowered. Hellcat, dead. Huntress 1, dead. Huntress 2, sexually abused. Uh, Ice, dead. Ilyana Rasputin, kidnapped and raised by demons, aged, de-aged, dead. Invisible Woman, miscarriage of second child, Jade, lost her natural powers. Jarella, dead. Jean DeWolf, dead. Jean Loring Palmer, nervous breakdown, which caused her to, to murder and do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yes, and she became a Clipso. That's right. Uh, Jet of the New Guardians, I'm now familiar with this character. Uh, she died in battle after contracting HIV from the Hemogoblin. Uh, Jocasta, deactivated more than once. Karen Page, addicted to drugs, made porn films, infected by HIV, dead. Kat Matui, dead. Kinetics, depowered twice, catatonic. Cole, dead. Oh, she was created to be killed, too. Uh, Lady Flash, evil, dead. Lady Quark, dead. Laurel Gand, dead. Laurel Kent, revealed to be an evil robot, dead. Was it a female robot? I would think so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the best they could do. Uh, Linda Park, kidnapped, removed from history. Looker, now a vampire. Madeline Pryor, clone, broodmare, demon queen, dead, brought back. Mantis, child taken away, dead. Uh, Marlo Chandler, Rick Jones' wife, former prostitute, killed and brought back mindless, got better. Marina, uh, insane, then dead. Mentala of Legion of Superheroes, dead. Mera, insane, and her child was murdered. A mirage from the team Titans. She was impregnated by rape. 
Mockingbird, abducted and mind-manipulated into a relationship, dead. Uh, Maura McTaggart was diseased. She was the first human to get the mutant legacy virus, which ultimately killed her. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ms. Marvel 1, who was also known as Warbird at the time. This is Carol Danvers, current Captain Marvel. Mm. Uh, Mind-controlled, impregnated by rape. Powers and memories stolen, cosmic powered, then depowered, and she's an alcoholic. Yeah. Wow, she had a lot happen yeah. to her. Yeah, it was a busy week. Ms. Um, <laughs> Marvel 2 became a monster. She became the, the she thing in Fantastic Four. Then she was demonstered but enslaved by Doctor Doom and depowered. Miss um, Tech of the Justice League Task Force, dead. Namorita was revealed to be a clone and then reverted to a more primal Atlantean form with very pointy teeth. Yikes. Uh, and gills everywhere. Not very ladylike. Anyway, uh, no. Negative Woman, uh, depowered from a second Doom Patrol. Nightshade, depowered. Nightwind, dead. Nova the second, uh, aka Frankie Ray, dead. Phoenix, uh, evil, dead. Who knows? Power mm-hmm. Girl, depowered, magically impregnated, made vulnerable to unprocessed natural materials like sharp sticks. Psylocke, eyes removed, eviscerated, depowered, mind swapped. Rachel Summers, aka Phoenix 2, lobotomized. Raven, sometimes evil, sometimes dead. Always boring. Which is which is really a great description of the character, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah. so those three things, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Red Guardian 2, kidnapped and brainwashed into the love slave of a supervillain. That's got to suck. Red Wing of Team Titans, dead. Revanche, who was the, uh, she was like the uh, body double of Psylocke. Uh, is still in the British body somehow, dead. Uh, Rogue, way messed up, couldn't touch people. <laughs> uh, Roulette, dead. Scarlet Witch, her children died or vanished or lost or because they never existed. They were just figments of her imagination. And even if they weren't, they were the product of her in a robot. And, and, uh, and now she's uh, now a member back. of Hydra. <laughs> oh, she is. Yeah. <laughs> but the, and the kids are actually they they actually exist now. They're Speed and Wiccan yep, of the uh, they, Young Avengers. Yep. Uh, Serpentine. Uh, I'm guessing the, she's dead. I'm gonna say dead. Yeah. Shrinking Violet. She lost a leg during uh, Keith Giffen's Legion. We got Shvon Aaron turned into a man. Silver Sorceress dead. Snowbird child and husband murdered. Insane dead. The first Spider Woman dead for a while, then depowered. Starfire, raped, tortured, enslaved, forced into marriage twice. Storm, depowered, repowered, periodically crazy to one degree or another. Uh, Supergirl, pre-crisis, dead. Uh, the Supergirl, the... Uh, the uh, Peter David. Peter David. I was, I was going to say Philip Dick. Are you, is everything all right over there? Uh, we, 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 I don't live too far from Luke Air Force Base. Like don't live too far from the uh, uh, dynamite quarry or something. <laughs> Goodness <laughs> gracious. Uh, sorry, yeah, P- Supergirl, Peter David version, lost her invisibility and most of her shape-shifting. Uh, SW6 Projecta, dead. Taro, dead, brought back to life and was bound to an evil man. Threnody, dead. She was another legacy virus victim. Uh, Tigra, devolved into a cat thing. Triplicate girl had one body killed, one was presumed dead, but revealed to be Glorith's pawn. Uh, Wildcat number two, dead. Wolfsbane, locked in werewolf form for a while, needs major therapy. Wonder Girl the first, a.k.a. Troya, a.k.a. Darkstar. <laughs> I mean, you know, what didn't happen to her? Identity and power is stripped from her multiple times. Wonder Woman has been killed, revived, lost goddess powers, and it goes on from there. Uh, Zatanna, her powers were severely limited. 
So, boy, that's some list. That's a list, all right. Uh, I, I just want to give my my take on this. I mean, this is this is so long after the fact that sure. Uh, you know, who knows what what. What I'm interested apply. to hear this because I I wonder if how how close we are in this. Yeah, I will. You know, my feeling is that there's definitely something here. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh, and and using women as narrative devices for you know uh, main character male main characters is not new to comics. It goes uh, goes back for a long time, and there is something kind of crummy about it. At the same time. Characters dying and coming back to you know to I me. Mean, this is comic books. It's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The things that happen to people in comic books are ridiculous, folks. They're not <laughs> sensible. They're they're <laughs> they are. I mean, to me that to me, if you ever want to hold up a thing that is ludicrous and say like this is a thing that it's the Phantom Zone. Okay, it's, <laughs> the length Superman will go not to kill someone is to put them in a timeless dimension yep. where they're forced to watch. You know, regular you know life happen forever. I mean, you know what I mean? It's Ever. it's so much worse than killing them. It's so yeah. much worse. You know what I mean? So much more cruel. It's yep. the cruelest, and yet it's comic books. And so you know, which which doesn't excuse everything. You know what I mean? I sure. I definitely think, and I think like uh, you know, as we you know we're gonna hear some responses here. I think that a lot of times these you know characters got girlfriends just to you know it's funny just to advance story just, just to, exactly or just to just to get them to you know have, have some automatic growth you know now life mm-hmm. is serious i've had to go to a funeral you know it happened with, with <laughs> spider-man and gwen stacy to some extent sure. uh and it's interesting because it used to be the female character for superheroes that was their you know that the, the the dichotomy was they were chasing them in their alter ego but the women only love their super had no time for them um, exactly. in there yeah uh, whereas in the more modern age, it's more like it's it's the chick that has to uh, meet meet an untimely end so that they can you know have their vengeful purpose. But I do think that it's perhaps too broad a list in capturing comic booky things that have happened to comic book sure. characters. That's what I have to say. No, I, I, the way I look at it, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Um, yeah. That comics are like the only form of entertainment, or or you know, just a product that has always been on the cusp of closing down. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always like you know, comics won't be here in five years. Comics won't be here next year. Yeah. And and comics have this odd thing where it feels like they would rather they would rather not try to find new readers but instead exploit the ones they still have. Mm-hmm. And for what they have is young men. Yes. And so to and so to tell stories where a, a woman is a plot device and it's not excusing it because there is definitely something there. Um but I I I I don't think there's any kind of malintent is what I, I'm mm-hmm. trying to say but I think it's more we know what the people who read this like and we need to give it to them or because you know, if you if you did a if you had a female hero in a time where there weren't as many female readers, it wouldn't last. Yep. You know, and it's because I, I saw I saw a tweet earlier in the week saying that when Marvel canceled Mockingbird, it was the stupidest business decision they ever made. And I'm thinking, and it's like, well, nobody bought Mockingbird, so why would Marvel 
put that out. It was under ten thousand shipping a month. I mean, that yeah. was that was so. It's thing, like how you know? is that though? How is that the worst business decision Marvel ever made? Is to cancel a book that nobody bought. Just but but you know you wouldn't see that if it was Hawkeye or right. you know any other character. It had to be that character, and it's it's just such an odd time that we're in where things are are fueled by things that aren't story. Is it? But uh. Before I, we go I, too I, much deep. No, I, I, do, I do very much hear what you're saying, that there's, you know, I, I mean, one thing we can say that's true about comic fans throughout many years is they're very passionate. Sure. Uh, and that they, you know, put a lot of stock Speaking in their... Speaking hyperbole. I know, really, I mean, you know, they're passionate, almost maniacal sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's there is definitely something to this, and I think that sure. since this time, we have definitely seen... Uh, a lot better female characters, a lot, a lot better diversity in characters, uh, sure. and and for the most part, the people that I talk to regularly lo- like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? They like to mm-hmm. see well-written characters that aren't just dudes all the time, but they don't like to see just people that are, uh, you know, um, gimmicks for. Agendas. Anyway, sure. let's not. Let's. Sure. We're going to get into big trouble talking about this. So we'll just. We'll go with some professional people's people responses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to start with Tom Brevoort. Now, uh, he's the editor in chief of Marvel now. I believe so. Or, or if he's not, if he's not like the publisher, but yeah, he's up there. Oh no, no, no. no he's an, he's an executive yeah. editor. That's what he is. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. Well, Mr. Brevoort says. Well, I think, first off, that this isn't a problem that, that's only common to female characters. I'd hazard a guess that if you were to line up all the black characters in comics, all the Jewish characters in comics, or all of the left-handed characters in comics, you could put together a similar list of dire things that have happened to them. And most of that is due to the fact that we're writing what we're writing is serialized fiction. In such a medium, contentment is boring. Stories occur when bad things happen to good people. And given the monthly demand for new stories about these fictional characters, never mind those folks who are in this, who are in a series that carry more than one title, sooner or later, everybody is going to be put through the ringer in some way. Which is uh, sim- similar to kind of what I was saying a little bit. Sure. Uh, John Byrne says, <laughs> sad list, isn't it? Further proof of what I have always said. Too many male writers seem to think only of only two things to do with the female characters. Rape them or knock them up. The dead ones might be the lucky ones. At least I made Wonder Woman more powerful. That's one. And didn't he turn her into stone and have her crumble? Oh, no. I think, I think uh, what happened was he actually broke his arm patting himself on the back, so he had someone else had to finish it. That was the problem. That could be it. That <laughs> could be it. Uh, Baby Anisiesa says, Before being able to comment on the tragedies which have befallen only female char- comic characters as any kind of a trend, I would need to see a similar list of the kind of tragedies that would have... That, I'm sorry, which have befallen male characters in direct proportion to the number of female characters versus male which exists through the entire industry. If the percentage of tragedy becomes statistically valid, i.e., in comparing the percentage of female comic characters against a proportionate percentage of male comic characters, we have found that women characters have suffered X percent more power loss, X percent more beheadings, etc. I I love Fabian, but I think this kind of misses the point. I do, too. Yeah, I mean, he's... uh... 
he's sort of gaslighting, as they say. But also, oh, I don't know why. I don't know why he thinks suddenly Gail Simone became a statistician. She's <laughs> going to put together some pie charts and graphs for him. Like n equals negative one. Goodness, you know. <laughs> goodness gracious. Anyway, but he has more to say. Uh, he continues creating nothing more than a list and litany of characters is not a valid analysis of a trend. You could just as easily cr create a list of characters with blue in their costumes and make it appear to be damning evidence against the fact comic colorists are blind to chartreuse. You need to compare your subject, uh, subject against another subject in order to make a valid statistical statement, if indeed you even want to make one. What is the purpose of this list? Is it to imply or state based on fact that comics writers treat female characters more unfairly than male characters? Or is it merely to have fun? If the former, you have to create a valid statistical analysis before you have proven your point and the results can be commented on. If the latter, then I also suggest you create a list of characters with capes who have, who have had them ripped, characters who have never changed their hairstyles, etc. As a writer with at least over four, 500 story credits, I stopped counting. Math still isn't my strong suit, yet you want someone else to do these like highly <laughs> statistical analytics, you know. Uh, I will say that professionally speaking, I believe in treating all my characters, male, female, black, white, or Kryptonian, with equal measure, respect, and abuse. Basically, you have to respect them enough to abuse them in order to see how they will handle the adversity. Me, remember, monthly comics publishing is akin to a soap opera with more punches thrown. Characters have to be made to endure both physical and emotional adversity in order for the lifeblood of the genre, i.e. monthly serial stories, to work. When you've done more work on the subject, I'd be glad to discuss your results. Thanks, teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he, there is like a, a nugget of a point in there. Yeah. I mean, I love Fabian, but it, because this, this is the kind of thing you'd see on BuzzFeed right now. It's like, you know, num number seven will shock you. It's yeah. like, it, it is just a list. It's a, it's a list thrown out to get a reaction. Absolutely. And I think, and, and, it, and it obviously is. Yeah. Uh, as Fabian has, uh, has uh, you know, shown us. Uh, next one, Jeff Johns, current president of DC Entertainment. He says, You've got a great point about the hard times female heroes have faced. No doubt it's probably due to a long history of the, of the majority of male creators in the comic field. I do feel it's getting better. Female heroes are more widely accepted, and I hope to break all the rules with Courtney. He's talking about Courtney Whitmore. Starfire, right? Star, yeah, star, uh, star, she was a Star Spangled Kid, then Star Girl. Right, okay, Star Girl, that's what I meant, yeah. yeah. Uh, he continues, she's headstrong and not overdeveloped in the chest area. She'll face hard times, but nothing too violating. Hope the book continues to pique your interest. I could go on and on about female heroes. Heck, the whole reason I wanted to do a female Star Spangled Kid in the first place was so the DCU had a teenage girl hero that wasn't tied to Batman, Superman, or one of the other big guns. A teenage girl who had a legacy of her own to uphold. Oh, go to Marv Wolfman, elder statesman of comics. He says, I think it generally means killing female heroes is supposed to elicit more emotions from readers than killing male killing male." Heroes or male readers it says here <laughs> Of the list I killed only two And two were created to die Tara and Cole Though Cole was in retrospect a mistake Which I did Because other writers complained We weren't killing off any of my characters in Crisis And if I <laughs> wanted their characters to die I had to kill off one of mine I think the whole <laughs> Amazing Isn't that great? I, I think the wholesale slaughter is because There's a lot of writers who think All major character motivation is made by killing folk and women characters are easier to kill than male characters, and so few of them are major heroes on their own. It is true that although some of the best characters are female characters, almost no female starring book has ever survived with the exception of Wonder Woman. And that survives only because of licensing potential. 
its sales have never been good. Wow. Talk about yes. Talk about straight dope right there from Mr. Yeah, dropping some knowledge on us there. Uh, He continues. The reason for that is I fear that most boys want to read heroes about a big, big muscled guy hero showing off than girl heroes. They want the girl heroes there in the background and even important to books, but they rarely, if ever, buy a book starring a female. Younger boys, I think, are frightened to some degree by the overly muscled woman, even though they might find a might find a sexual delight in them. Ooh, <laughs> having having always created lots of female characters and doing some good work on them, I think, by making them all individuals, whether someone liked the Titans or not, Starfire, Wonder Girl, and Raven were not in any way the same person in different latex costumes. I find most female heroes that other writers do are simply cookie cutouts. Since a very few of these are anything special, it's easy to knock them off. Acknowledging that does not condone it. It merely explains it. He's got a point. He does have a, a very good point, uh, and he mm-hmm. is right about his three characters from Teen Titans. Yeah. They're, they're, those three, they're very different. They are w- wildly different, in fact. Yes. Uh, then we have uh, a comment from an actual lady, Heidi McDonald. Uh, your list is impressive, but I have to say, and all honestly, you have, if you compose a list of male superheroes who had been killed, maimed, or otherwise dispossessed, it would be just as long. Probably longer, since there's more of them. I added that sure. part. Superman's death, <laughs> Batman's broken back, the many X-Men tragedies, etc. However, you've circled the nail without quite hitting it. Female hero- heroes are co- consistently devalued and their heroism undermined. Look at Wonder Woman, for instance. As much as I love Brian Bolland, every cover of the book has her in bondage, about to be injured or in some jeopardy of one kind or another. Triumphant cover images are few and far between. It's very rare to find a female superhero in comics who is consistently presented as a heroic figure, unselfconsciously. My new role models are the Powerpuff Girls. Without going into the reasons for this, <laughs> I do think part of the reason that female superheroes often don't succeed and, and comics don't have more women readers. Dan Jurgen says, While I think part of the problem for female characters is that, since our readership is dominated by males, they aren't perceived as having the same economic viability as many male characters. But before too much focus is torqued on the women, let's take a look at all the male characters that have been killed, twisted, morphed, etc. Mostly, it's all just bad judgment by creatively challenged editors and writers who who can't think of anything else to do. Well said, Mr. Jurgens. Mm-hmm. Eric Larson, creator producer of Savage Dragon, says gals in comics have gotten the short end of the stick, but in all honesty, all honesty, guys haven't fared much better. Just flip through a book of the dead, and you'll see that the de- and you'll see that dead guys far outnumber dead women. Uh, is there a book of the dead for comics? I didn't know. That. Anyway, uh, but <laughs> but then again, there were more guys to begin with, I suppose. Come to think of it, Nova has had his powers taken away twice. Warren Ellis, who is completely full of crap, here, I says, this. <laughs> I don't really know any of the characters, so I don't feel like I can add anything. Uh, such a Warren Ellis answer. What oh, a, so full of crap. What a jerk. <laughs> uh, the uh, estimable Dwayne McDuffie, who actually, I believe, Gail Simone credits with kind of giving breaking her a her start. In, right? Yeah, bringing her in yeah. and teaching her the ropes. Uh, he said, interesting stuff. Of course, you're correct. It bothers me that I'm responsible for something on your list, the, the depowering of Captain Marvel. I have an excuse. It was to prevent her from looking like such an idiot. She was damn near omnipotent and, always had, and she always lost fights. I felt I had to depower her to continue to portray her as competent. Of course, we see how that turned out. But the truth is, my work on her still fits the pattern. 
Maybe your page will embarrass enough folks in the industry that will start considering everything we're saying when we do stuff like this. Or better yet, maybe more women will be inspired to take the reins and write some female characters who aren't plot devices to complicate the hero's life. Keep up the good, if somewhat gruesome, work. It's interesting that he key included that line about embarrassing the creators. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of jumped out at me. Um, Jerry Ordway. What can I offer to this? I have a six-year-old daughter, and I find a lot of the female characterizations to be unsuitable for her to read. That doesn't mean all comics need to be geared toward little kids, but the stories you listed were generally from standard newsstand comics, and a lot of them came out in the 80s. Male writers in comics often wrote these stories totally from the male perspective, which is one problem. Recently, when Peter David wrote a Mary Marvel Supergirl special, I was a bit disappointed with the storyline, which involved Mary being almost being molested by a cop, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do think stories like this can be told, but why fall into this cliche? It's like movies of the 70s where the lead females were either raped or, or the act was attempted to set up the revenge thing. It's been overused. Female characters need to have more dimensions, and the stories need to reflect their own interests. My daughter likes Batgirl in the Batman Adventures mags and hungers for good girl superheroes to read about. I think he makes a great point there, you know, too, is that... He does. Yes, you, you, you know, women have been used as plot device, and that is an option, but it's a very well-used option. So, you know, that's a well yeah. you might not want to go to as uh, routinely as, as it, people seem to go to it. But, but finally, we've got to close out with words from Ron Mars himself, the man who started all this refrigerator mm -hmm. business. And he says, I think the obvious point here is that female characters in general have a rougher time of it. I think the knee-jerk reaction is that they're more abused, though I'm not sure that's fully the case. Male heroes go through all sorts of trials and tragedies and generally triumph over them in the end. However, you could certainly make a list of male heroes, Captain Marvel, Jason Todd, Bucky, various former GLs, Barry Allen, etc., who wound up dead or depowered all the... <laughs> <laughs> that list This is pretty, 1999 pretty, folks. Don't forget, yeah, it's pretty funny to read that down <laughs> To me the real difference is less male-female Than main character-supporting character In most cases, main characters Title characters who support their own books Are male it, Historically, male characters have been able to support Their own books sales-wise While female characters have not I'm not sure this is the case anymore But I suspect the mindset still prevails To a certain, to a certain extent so male characters who support their own individual titles remain somewhat immune to the kind of severe and permanent character changes you're citing. If it, it has more to do with sales figures than sex bias. So if main characters, including Wonder Woman, are generally sacrosanct, the supporting characters are the ones who suffer the more permanent and shattering tragedies. And a lot of supporting characters are female. Take Gwen Stacy, for example, even though it's example more than two decades old. Her death was a tragedy, obviously, but it also serves as a tragedy in Spider-Man's life, a case of supporting characters' death being used to adversely affect the life of a, the main character. Since most main characters are male, a way of introducing tragedy into their character's life is to have something adverse happen to a woman in his life. He continues, To my mind, as a writer, you want to be able to introduce some sort of change or drama to your characters. You can kill off or otherwise severely change a supporting character. You just can't do that with the main character, in most cases, and certainly never without the blessing of the powers that be. In the case of Marvel's Nova, she died—this is the Frankie Ray Nova—she mm. died at the hands of a villain during my Silver Surfer run. Mainly, she died because she had been the current 
because she had been the current Herald of Galactus, and I personally could not justify how a human being could willingly serve the World Devourer. Since she had been shown doing this happily for a number of years, I thought a sudden pang of conscience would come out of left field, and I wanted to give Galactus a truly amoral Herald, one who actively enjoyed his job. There were secondary reasons for Nova's death, including illustrating how truly despicable that new Herald was. But her death had nothing to do with her gender. Had a male character been willing and willingly and currently serving Galactus, I would have knocked him off as well. The more infamous example, I suspect, is Alex, Kyle Rayner's then-girlfriend. I see a reference to her being cut up and stuck in a refrigerator. Mmm, the plot thickens, so he continues. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you assume incorrectly that Alex was cut up, which is frankly a rather common mistake. The real story <laughs> behind that page is that as initially written and drawn, Kyle finds her body stuffed into the fridge. Her whole body in one piece. In fact, I have a copy of that original page. The comics. Everything. <laughs> I know. Oh, well, that it's fine. Uh, the comics code went bananas and made us change the artwork so the door was mostly shut. This had the effect of forcing readers to use their imaginations as to what the unseen scene was. And a lot of readers went for the most grisly thing imaginable a dismembered body. I think this actually says a great deal more about some readers' minds than it does about our original intentions. Come on, Ron. <laughs> really? Uh, score one for the comics code. All that said, I can tell you that Alex was a character destined to die from the moment she was first introduced in GL number 48. I created her with the intention of having her be murdered at the hands of major force. I took a lot of care in building her as a character because I wanted her to be liked and her death to mean something to the readers. I wanted readers to be horrified at the crime and to empathize with Kyle's loss. Her death was meant to bring brutal realization to Kyle that being GL wasn't fun in games. It was also meant to sever his links with his old life, paving the way for his move to New York. And ultimately, I wanted her death to be memorable and illustrate just how truly heinous Major Force was. Thus the fridge. From the reactions, I think I succeeded fairly well at those goals. It's five years later, and people are still talking about it. More than anything as a writer, you want the audience to react emotionally to your work and to care. Hmm. And he continues. I, I <laughs> that concludes villain. now, but anyway. <laughs> I wrote a villain committing a truly despicable deed. That doesn't mean I endorse or admire that behavior. No, that's good to hear. Nice. I, I doubt Thomas Harris thinks of Hannibal Lecter as a positive role model either. And it's probably worth mentioning that Major Force was punished for the act. Comics have a long history as a male-oriented and male-dominated industry. That's not a statement of judgment, simply one of fact. I do think comics can and should be more sensitive to female characters, but these are the times in which general editorial mindset is cut to the fight scene, in which half-naked women on, on covers spike sales. Uh, publishers are unfortunately more concerned with survival than with sensitivity to women, and that's a shame. If we want to save our industry, maybe we should stop ignoring half the population as possible readers. You know, Ron makes a good point here, though, is that a, few, uh, yeah. a, a lot of good points, and, and that I do think that he did, in the in the short amount of space that she was in the series, which, again, I, I didn't even realize it had only been a few issues, but he does a lot to develop Alex, you know? Absolutely. Uh, it's just that first issue. It, it, definitely, you know? I mean, she's sort of, she's sort of you know, a, uh, you know, pulling the plug on his enthusiasm, but he definitely portrays Kyle as kind of a doofus, you know what I mean? As, a, like, as an aloof goofball, yeah. You know, he kind of strikes me as one of the guys from uh, Bill and Ted's, you know, he's uh, one of those guys. So um, it does provide, you know, her death is meaningful to the reader, it and it does, him, yeah. it changes Kyle, and Kyle still equips her, but I think he 
it definitely had calmed him down as far as like how goofy and how much he was willing to exploit his power. He or, understands how high the stakes are now. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, this is a character that was introduced and killed in five issues, six issues, you know what I mean? So this yeah. obviously wasn't a uh, <laughs> long thing. So anyway, uh, Gail Simone, obviously she's now a comics writer, having done lots of work for Marvel, DC. She's currently writing Clean Room for Vertigo. You can check out lby3.com backslash wir backslash for more creator responses and information about women in refrigerators. And maybe even a comment from Warren Ellis. Maybe he found out some, who some of those characters are now. I would, I'd love to get an update. Maybe we should, we should uh, contact Warren Ellis ourselves and see what he has to say about the subject now. It's like, you don't, you don't know Jean Grey, really? Give me a break. Really? I mean, what a, he's such a, such a liar, but uh, he just didn't want to. You know, he probably... Frankly, he's too cool for superheroes. Exactly. He's, oh, I'm on to new things now. <laughs> but anyway, we would love to also to, to know what you guys think about uh, Green Lantern, about women refrigerators, about Hal's uh, Emerald Advancement team. Uh, any, anything we've attack. talked about or whatever, exactly. Or if you, want, if you think it should be the attack team. Uh, <laughs> we kind of did a big Green Lantern episode, so you can tell us what you think. Write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm at Twitter personally at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I tell you, every week, go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. He's definitely been uh, scouring those dollar bins at Half Price Books and showing mm -hmm. off some Bronze Age wares that I've been... Actually, you know, you've also been doing some uh, brand new books, some Rebirth books. <laughs> I have. I've Recently. been uh, captivated by the uh, the Superman Reborn, and uh, even to an extent the uh, the button. The button the, event uh, happened right now. Button. Yeah. I'll tell you, Chris's reviews of these comics are the best around because they are the most. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious because because you are approaching it uh, enthusiastically, but hmm. with the skepticism of a. You know, long-time comics reader. Old man. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you're not, you're not, you're, not, you're no longer running in there like, where's his, where's his trunks? You know what I mean? Like, sure. You're over the, you're over the little things. You know what I mean? But you're not gonna just, you're not gonna just like think this is so cool, even though, whatever it is, you're gonna have to go read it. It's over there, Chris. It's infraearth.com. I think it's some of the better commentary on these books. Plus, you know, I love when you do whatever, you know, old Legion of Superhero books and stuff like that. Some really great stuff going on over there. Trying to learn the Legion. It's a it's a tough road to hoe. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, we definitely want to give another big thanks to V Ken Marion for the suggestion. It's uh it's just so cool knowing that uh you know, a pro is is listening to, to two marble mouths talking about comics. It's, I know uh, it, it, it's so cool. Definitely definitely humbles us. I just like the fact that we did a Green Lantern book. He's drawing Green Lanterns. Yeah, and that crazy with Green with Kyle in that costume. Kyle's there in the exactly. I wonder how much he had to do with that because it kind of happened as he got on the book. It so did. Uh, I wonder. And also to everyone else in the world, we are still we always taking suggestions. Uh, I preferred if you would send it on email, but as you know, I will take them any way I get them, and we yeah. add them to the list. But uh, wow, you know that second half of the show was not a half at all, was it? It was more like the <laughs> last uh, three fifths of the show, or whatever. Um, I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I think that'll do us. Well, until next week, folks. I want you to keep it on the treadmill, grungishly. See you.